0: Good evening, you are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50pm. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on CJSW.com. This episode of Writer's Block features interviews with Doreen Vander Stoop as well as an interview with Micah Jacobson. Following that, we have a fun segment on literary history. Writers' Block airs out of the University of Calgary campus. If you'd like to get involved with our show, you can email us at cgsw.writers@gmail.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Here's Jenny Kwong's interview with Doreen Vanderstoop. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block.
1: Today I'm speaking with Doreen Vanderstoop about her debut novel Watershed. So welcome Doreen.
2: Thank you Jenny, great to be with you.
1: And so today you have a book called Watershed. So when did you start working on the book?
2: Oh, it was a good long time ago. It was about 10 years ago that, uh, that I started and uh, work, worked on it really on and off. Um, I also had a, um, a freelance writing career and two boys to raise, so I was, I was a busy mom. Uh, but I, I took some time out in between and slowly got her done.
1: And so what was the conversation around that time on climate change, and how has it changed since then in Alberta?
2: Well it's it's interesting because when I um when I started the book I was really uh sort of basing it on my empathy for farmers which I've you know had all my life for some reason because I'm actually a very much a city person but uh but I always had empathy for farmers and and the difficulties that they have given the the swings in the weather that we already have and I started to think about how much more difficult their work would be, you know, in the face of climate change. And and climate change at that point, you know, it had certainly been in the news cycle, and Al Gore, you know, had brought it to the fore. And so I, I started working on it based on that. And then things kind of calmed down a little bit, it seemed. And 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 a few years later, I was starting to wonder, you know, is anybody going to be interested in this whole climate change topic? You know, is this is this actually topical still? But then in 2015, I heard a quote from Margaret Atwood. She had been to a literary festival in Barrie, Ontario. And she said, where are all the Canadian writers who should be writing about this, this greatest crisis of our age, climate change? And I thought, well, if Margaret Atwood thinks it's important, then I think I should get writing this book. So that was really my clarion call to, uh, to get it done.
1: And so I guess um, there's been like a historical record of how drought has uh, affected farmers in Alberta. So whether people accept climate change or not as a fact, there is still the historical memory of what has happened in the past. So is that something that farmers still consider as something that to be concerned with uh, going forward?
2: Absolutely. I visited various farms when I was researching about goat rearing because I knew nothing about that. And so I actually, you know, called up various farms and asked if I could come and visit them and talk to them about their operation. And water scarcity was a huge concern for all of them. There's one very specific example, and that's at Sunnybrook Farm. Andrea uh, Mueller, who is just the wonderful person who took me under her wing for four days. I stayed with her and she didn't know me at all, but she was so generous with her time and her knowledge. But she said water was such a huge issue on their farm that when she was bathing the children when they were young, they would have to go and drive the cattle away from the water trough in the field. Because if the cows were drinking the water, they wouldn't be able to bathe the children. There wouldn't be enough water to do that. And that was when the children were young. The children are grown now. So these, these issues are only growing in importance and concern.
1: And so as much as the book is about the environment, it's also about a family story with Villa as the uh, main character, as well as her husband, Calvin, and her son, Daniel. Correct. So can you tell me about how you were able to develop their stories?
2: Yeah, it was, it was an interesting evolution because I started with the character of Willa and uh, really wanted to tell her story. She, um, she, would, she would call to me from, from the front of her log house and it was like, tell my story. And uh, so, so I started to tell her story first. And I realized, you know, as I was writing it, that what was really sort of coming out was her relationship with her son. And and he grew in importance to the point where he became almost an equal presence in the book. And I thought, you know, really what, what showed Willa's growth and her progression through her challenges was her relationship with her son. So it ended up being, you know, juxtaposing the two of them against each other. And their, their very conflicting ambitions, that's what made uh, the story of Willa more interesting.
1: You touch upon uh, so many aspects of uh, real life. And so how much time did you get to spend with goats to be able to tell that part of the story?
2: Oh my goodness, I fell in love with goats they're just they are just the sweetest creatures, and they're so smart and As I said, I visited several goat farms and I spent the most time up at Sunnybrook uh, farm with uh, Felix and Andrea Mueller and their children their wonderful children and uh, it was It was very illuminating um, because I had a very sort of romantic view of what farm life was like. And, and I got to see how hard they work and, and how difficult the work really is, um, how trying it is to try and make a living at it. It was very instrumental in, in the book. I learned so much from them, but there were even whole scenes that appeared in the book because of my contact with these wonderful people. And one of them in particular, when the, uh, the there's a boy in the story who is actually Willis' friend's son, and and there's a bit of a tussle about who's going to be his guardian and she would love to be his guardian. And he stays some on their farm for some time and he actually helps a goat bring a, a little kid into the world by himself. And that scene actually happened to me while I was at Sunnybrook Farms with uh and Andrea had been there. There were two goats that had been born from this from this goat. And she had to go do the milking. And, and once she's at those milking machines, she can't leave. And so I couldn't go and get her because I knew she couldn't come. So I just followed the instructions that she had given me while, you know, she was there with me. And I brought this goat into the world, you know, from this mother. And she, Andrea ended up saying it was quite a feat because the goat was breached. And she said, if I hadn't been there to help it into the world, then it probably would have died. So it was an amazing experience that, of course, you know, I had to, to put in the book. And uh, so it was, it's all very real.
1: <laughs> As you said, you were able to get to know a lot of the families who live around southern Alberta. So uh, what was it like to see a part of their lives in your research?
2: It was it was really it was really interesting and amazing and uh, and as I said I fell in love with these goats and when I came back I must have looked very starry eyed because my husband said to me he said Doreen I will support you in many ways but we will not get goats <laughs> so so I really did fall in love with uh, with goats and with with goat farming and and the wonderful people that I met and you know it's, I saw the incredible work that they do in the face of all the vagaries of nature, not, you know, already, as you, as you noted, Jenny, already we have these swings in water supply and in weather, and that is only getting worse with climate change, and so their job is just getting more and more difficult. And, and one of the things I think that's really important that I think is a source of hope is to really listen to the science about it all and uh, and really get real about what we can do about it. One of the people that I love to read in terms of that is Robert W. Sanford. And he is actually the uh, Chair of Water and Climate Security at United Nations University, but he lives here in Canmore. And he has written many books about water scarcity in the Mountain West, in particular, but also around the world. And he is just this beautiful writer. He writes lyrically and prolifically about the importance of water and what we all have to do to protect it. So I went back to his books again and again and one of my favorite quotes of his is about science. And he says, good science involves not just the sharing of knowledge about the world, it is a candle we light when we want to see and be warmed by the truth. And I think that's what we need when we're facing these these incredible challenges that are just increasing every year, uh, you know, with extreme weather events and droughts and fires. Uh, we need to listen to the scientists and we need to all be committed to doing what we can to uh, to reverse the effects of climate change.
1: And you uh, set the novel al- around 2050, which is like 30 or 40 years from now. So it's still the scene seems still familiar about southern Alberta and Calgary. But at the same time, there's slightly more a little bit uh, different from what we already know.
2: Right. I really wanted to uh, to create sort of a near future dystopian world as opposed to something that was you know seemed very sci-fi and very far in the future. I think I wanted people to um, to understand that these calamities are not, you know centuries away. they may well be decades away. And I think what we're seeing is they may well be years away. So, you know, I, I when I was writing the book, I kind of contracted the, uh, the timeline that I saw. Certainly the disappearance of glaciers, I don't know when that's going to happen. But even what the scientists are saying is that even if we hold the global temperature increase to two degrees this century, we will still lose 20% of the world's glaciers. And Canada, in fact, has 20% of the world's glaciers. So if we lose 20% of our glaciers, that's huge. Like, that is a huge effect and something that, you know, something that can't be ignored.
1: Uh, anything else you'd like to say about the novel before we wrap up?
2: Well, I, I hope people enjoy it. I, I know that there were some people in the height of the pandemic who said, you know, I really need to uh, to put this book aside because it's a little bit too much like our real world. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but they did get back to it and, and I've heard I've heard wonderful things from people. Somebody told me uh somebody from Ottawa told me that after reading uh my book that she was so much more grateful for the water that came out of her tap and the water that runs in the canal outside her window. And I thought that was probably one of the best compliments I could get. So if it you know, if it helps people kind of imagine uh how things might be and then it helps them imagine the world they might want, then uh, that's uh, you know that's the best compliment I could ever get.
1: All right. Uh, thank you very much for your time today.
2: Thank you very much, Jenny, for the chat.
1: Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Reddit's Blog. That was my conversation with Doreen der Stoop. Doreen der Stoop is a singer and guitar player. She tells stories of all kinds and performs at schools, libraries, senior homes, and many other places. Her short fiction has appeared in Prairie Fire magazine. She is a member of Tales, the Alberta League Encouraging Storytelling, and Storytellers Canada. Watershed is Doreen van der debut
0: novel. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Blog airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cjsw.com. That was Jenny Kwong interviewing Doreen Vanderstoop. Coming up next, we have my interview with Micah Jacobson. Stay tuned. So good evening, everyone. This is Maddie Robinson for CGSW. Tonight I am interviewing Micah Jacobson on her new essay collection Modern Fables. Hi Micah, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you Maddie? I am actually doing wonderful today, it's a beautiful day in Calgary. Um, I thought we'd start out the interview with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe about this uh, new collection.
3: Sure, well I am a writer from Calgary so I grew up here and the collection is in many ways a lot about my relationship to place, and in particular, my relationship to growing up on the prairies. They're they're personal essays, so they're autobiographical. They are also a lot about being a 30-something single woman, what it's like to date in a fairly conservative place when you're not a conservative person. And what had seemed to me as I grew older and was maybe a bit surprised by was a lot of cultural stigma around single women single people in general and so the collection also uh, talks quite a lot about dating and, and and dating in your 30s.
0: I did note um there was a lot of different essays it was a very diverse collection which I actually really liked because then the connections that you make are more specific and more interesting that way. Do so you want to talk about why you titled it modern fables? I find that really interesting.
3: So Partly because, well, Modern Fables is the title of one of the essays in the collection. And that essay in particular looks at catfishing and digital persona and is thinking about what it means to present oneself in a particular way in dating environments. It's also talking about catfishing and like lying to someone that you're dating and someone that I was dating who was, I believe, lying to me. But also, I think, like, one of the things that I was really interested about as I was writing the collection, and also just thinking about the distinction between fiction and nonfiction more broadly, is this question of, like, what is truth? You know, like, these essays are, you know, based on things that have happened to me. But of course... You know, I am the narrator. It's still a persona. They're filtered through my own memory and my own perception of events. The, you know, the play on the idea of the fable as being, you know, a story that imparts morality, but also, you know, something that is untrue was something that reflected some of the broader themes that I was looking at in the essay and or in the collection uh, as a whole. For sure. I I
0: definitely caught on to that theme, and I actually wanted to touch on that. So for the listeners, the titular essay, Modern Fables, is about a man you dated who almost constantly lied. And the essay has a lot of relations to kind of like childhood and how we, we do actually lie a lot to children with fables like Santa Claus. And it mentions, you know, London Bridge is falling down and all these nursery rhymes. And in a way, it's it's interesting because you almost kind of side-eye the fact that as children we're lied to a lot, but mm. it's for the greater good. Mm-hmm. So there's almost mm-hmm. this moral question when this person you're dating starts, you know, I think it's he's described in the, in the story as a pathological liar, right? He says he's going into medical school, but you know he isn't and all this stuff. But you kind of bring up, you know, it's almost like a modern fable because the cat, Catfish is an animal and fables are full of animals with symbolic value. And so, like, would you almost say instead of, you know, the tortoise and the hare, now we have the catfish
3: (laughs) as as our modern fable here? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes. So when I think about where my mind was when I was uh, putting together the different pieces of the essay, certainly that was one element that I was considering. This moment when I was a kid where I realized that like people are lying all the time and that you like the power of a lie that like you can say something that isn't true. Yes. You can create like (laughs) which seemed and I mean I don't like to think of myself as a naive person but I tend to believe in what people say. Of course. But then of course I mean we all present reality differently all the time and in particular on social media and so I think In that essay, because it's looking at app dating and I think there, I don't know, I guess for some people there can be, uh, I don't know, a pressure to present oneself in a light that seems like more glorified or more impressive. All of us do that to some extent all the time. And so... I think you know when does that turn into you know outright lying or what i what i refer to in the essay as pathological lying and how those kinds of things bleed into one another well you bring up so
0: many good points and i feel like it's very fitting for a writer to think about this because you mentioned at the end of the book and i actually wrote a note The essays in your book rely on memory and imagination and certain details have been altered of course and you say that you aim for veracity while bending at times to aesthetic and narrative demands and I found this so interesting because I've been struggling personally with the um you know there's no more pathological liars in the world than fiction writers for example (laughs) (laughs) one could say they're the most skilled but they're the most self-aware right and so I think writers are really attuned to this thing about the truth and the not truth which is probably why you picked up on it because I think even you know children especially also I feel know when something is BS, but they're taught... I shouldn't say that on radio... Children know when things are untrue. (laughs) But they're taught at a very early age that some of this is almost a social grace. Like there's a lying of the social Mm -hmm. grace, right? Which is so fascinating. And I feel like that really plays into, for example, dating. Because there's a lot of couples, you know, eight years into their relationship, they'll say, oh, I lied on my first date with this person because I liked them so much. Mm -hmm. And then later they, so it's almost Mm -hmm. like it's, 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 I guess, social media. This is where it gets interesting as a modern fable because, you know, there's a social lie. But then social media lie takes it that like one step further, like it's further distance. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a lie on top of a lie or a persona on top of a persona. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I thought I would ask about that and maybe to swivel to the collection in general, like because I did want to ask, you know, as a nonfiction writer, do you really struggle with this like difference between, you know, the fable or Hmm. the allegorical that you're bringing in and like certain Mm. details like do you do you feel like because I struggle with this all the time like in in this collection I found it interesting because you do mention certain illegal activities that you know people that you knew people had done when you were a teenager and things Mm -hmm. do you ever struggle with like the legal implications do you ever think oh am I gonna
3: what's your mindset there I guess when you're writing these of course when you're putting something into narrative like sometimes you know you're you're choosing events you're choosing the context and you're putting them together in a very particular way to to make a particular point or to tell a particular story so so these essays, for example, have dialogue, and many of them happened, you know, many, many years ago, these conversations I'm remembering. So, you, you know, putting, you know, saying, like, this person said this thing, it's like, oh, I remembered this, but of course, it's not, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly right. the way that they said it. <laughs> of course. Um, and in terms of, yeah, so I, I think with things like um, narratives about my family, for instance, I've, you know, I'll feel quite anxious about writing about my family members I'll ask my sister to read something for example and then she'll you know if she's like laughing and saying oh this is exactly what this was like then at yeah, least I yeah. have some kind of corroboration of like okay so this is this is my memory of events but there's people remember things in a different way yeah in, and in terms of like I think this is one of the biggest struggles about uh nonfiction is just thinking about the exposure you know the exposure of yourself the exposure of other people and Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about it. I don't know that I know that there's a, you know, a a one right way to do it, uh, besides perhaps just being really careful and and, and really thoughtful about the kinds of things I'm choosing to write about and, and, and the way that I'm telling telling stories that, you know, that have happened to me, but also implicate other people.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I I guess it didn't occur to me until you started saying this, but you talk about how in some ways with social media, we're all kind of a catfish because we're presenting ourselves in a certain way. Are you almost hyper aware of the power you have because you get to present other people in a way that they might not see it? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like that's probably why you're so aware of it is because, you know, they might, you might notice how they're catfishing, but in the same way you think, oh, I don't Mm want to misrepresent them, even though they're misrepresenting themselves. It becomes very confusing. (laughs) It's a
3: 21st century problem. Like you'd never see this before, right? Yeah. (laughs) And that is so tricky too, right? Because of course, we very rarely see ourselves the way other people see us. You know, I I, like I have a narrative persona, which is some version of me in, in this collection, but isn't, you know, it's not like it's like a window to me, it's still it's still a narrator, I'm still presenting myself in a particular way. And so when I'm writing other people as characters, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be true to the spirit of, of, of my relationship with them and how I see them. But whether, you know, they would see themselves that way, uh, you know, I, I have no idea. And, uh, yeah, uh, so and it's, certainly, yeah, it's certainly something that I've thought a lot about.
0: I, I only ask because I think it's so interesting to read something that's creative nonfiction because I found personally, like, when I read nonfiction or when I, you know, like it's interesting when you read nonfiction it's about someone that you actually know or so- or something like that. Mm-hmm. It kind of adds like this weird second layer to it because I feel like people always have stories in their past and lives that they don't talk about and even me, like when I've written pieces of nonfiction and I've published I thought, oh my god, I feel like I'm doing the Mission Impossible laser dance where you're trying to like <laughs> not say too much mm-hmm. but also be honest to yourself which mm-hmm. is very difficult and then if there's ever like a legal implication someone does something bad or do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. again, especially now when nothing disappears
3: mm-hmm. I thought
0: that's why I thought I'd ask because it's almost I found this this collection of essays actually is very interesting because it does talk about how like in this we're kind of in this like modern dark age of technology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it it has a lot of kind of interesting implications because, you know, almost everything is documented. Right. Right. So, yeah, (laughs) Um, I did want to mention at the end, you mentioned you have this quote in Modern Fables that says, what then to make of our new and strange lives where the average among us spends 24 hours online in a week? what to make of the widespread impulse to document every moment as evidence of an enviable life. And you, you write, In an age when it seems like the most important daily activities is feeding an inflated and largely false version of oneself, perhaps the prevalence of the catfish is no one's fault or everyone's. I just, I found that very interesting because it's almost saying this is more of a, it's almost like it comes out of the natural habitat we have. It is, it's like you mentioned you like to write about place. It's almost like this digital place. Hmm. creates a digital habitat or environment where the catfish will just naturally breed right like it's like almost anything it's like almost any uh ecological system like you're going to have things that check and balance other things right (laughs) so the catfish is like a natural predator but it's it's part of a larger system almost i don't know
3: (laughs) yeah yeah i really i really like um the suggestion of of the of the digital place and i i mean i certainly think the internet and social media is is just changing the way that we are as human beings. I do think that this impulse to present the best version of oneself has also always been with us. But yeah, as you said, when it's available in public and when it's available indefinitely and when we have this, you know, Platform to broadcast our lives to so many people that makes us perhaps all a little bit less secure in in ourselves and who we are, and all a bit more vulnerable to yeah exaggerating aspects of our life and curating them so that we look like our 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 lives are somehow I don't know better than they really are. Yeah. But I don't know no, if, <laughs> if we're all doing it. Then you know we can be doing that ourselves, or you know I can be doing that myself. But still be convinced that the other lives I see are, you know, are the the true version of someone else's life or that they're, you know, that what they're doing is, I don't know, so interesting and and their lives are so beautiful. Exactly. Like,
0: this is where I struggle with this idea. I think, well, there's so much uh, lies already in just like social grace, you know, Mm -hmm. like little white lies and you know how it is. So it's like, is this just a deeper reflection or echolation of that where it just grows, right? Right? Like,
3: yes, that's right. Because of course, (laughs) I mean, not everyone, but I think many, many people, many of us do that. You know, it's like, of course, we'll say we like a gift if we don't like it or, you know, all kinds of things that just to avoid hurting other people's feelings. Or, yeah, as you said, for social grace, which.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm only fascinated with it just because I feel like it's it's such a prevalent question for our times. And I feel like we don't always question ourselves especially the lies you tell ourselves um but i thought i'd i thought i'd I'd move on to like another essay in this collection there's so many great ones so we can't touch on all of them um but i wanted to touch on one that kind of links into this and it's called kurt vonnegut lives on tinder Mm. now i thought this was very interesting because uh, so for the listeners the essay is kind of about basically dating on tinder and you you notice that um you kind of go on dates with all these guys who put kurt vonnegut as their favorite writer and the mm-hmm. irony is of course as you go on these dates none of them ever really talk about him or they seem to kind of brush it off but you're like really into it and you want to know like what's the appeal of kurt vonnegut uh for listeners who don't know kurt vonnegut a famous writer um very well known for slaughterhouse five uh, this essay collection does mention that you know slaughterhouse five is the only one people really remember and i'll admit it's the only one that i've read. <laughs> Uh, but i wanted to I wanted you to ask you about this one as well, because I feel like that's very connected to the catfishing thing. Mm-hmm. what kind of mm-hmm. what spurred you to write about this Kurt Vonnegut lives on Tinder kind of concept? <laughs> <laughs>
3: well it really was that I noticed that uh, uh, on my Tinder app anyway, that there was so many like so many men that said that Kuruvaniga was their favorite writer. I just and I I just thought that was really interesting. And so yeah, I mean, I'm a person who is an avid reader, and I'm a writer. And so you know, I this tends to be something that I gravitate towards in dating. That interested in hearing people's thoughts on literature, in particular, things that they really love and are excited about. I, I suppose the way that the essay unfolds is meant to demonstrate just different, you know, different uh, scenarios that can happen in the dating world and to be a reflection on, I don't know, I guess, certain hetero dating behaviors that I find frustrating and certainly have found to be a bit demoralizing and so demoralizing is a good word
0: for the tone of this (laughs) (laughs) escapade into the dating world (laughs) right
3: Uh, and 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 so like i think you know, if I if I think about it more broadly, you know, it, it certainly focuses on Kurt Vonnegut, but it's more about an inability to connect, particularly an inability to connect over something that you, you know I am genuinely passionate about and would hope in a you know a dating situation to find something that would be a mutual connection that brings excitement and joy and intellectual stimulation, which in 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 the essay doesn't really uh, doesn't really ever happen uh, in the dates that I go on. <laughs> Um, and I also just, you know, took it as an opportunity. I'd never read Kurt Vonnegut. So I took it as an opportunity to read a number of Kurt Vonnegut novels, which was really fun. You know, I, I like literary criticism. And I, I I like essays that delve into that. So I thought it would be a playful, fun way to look at this writer and look at dating culture, particularly dating culture in, in, in the prairies and Calgary, and to just think through, I don't know, some of the dynamics that seem to be pretty prevalent in the dating world and online dating world. And hopefully I I don't know. Make people laugh a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, I can definitely say if you're struggling to find that intellectual conversation, it's definitely not you because you're doing fine. (laughs) 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 Um, We're talking about books, but um, yeah, you do mention in in this uh, this essay. You say, in the words of a meme attributed to John Waters, "If you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't mess with them." Um, Which I think is is great. Which is why you're always going to look for somebody that you can actually have a a real conversation with. But yeah, I wanted to ask about this because you are mentioning there's certain like norms in dating and of course for the listeners that don't know uh, Slaughterhouse Five does kind of have almost like a critique of the, the man and woman relationship because in the in the book basically the book is basically kind of a metaphor for P- PTSD but it kind of is not Um, and you could call it a very manly book because uh, somewhere in this essay it also mentions that one of the critiques that's kind of in Slaughterhouse Five is that during like the world wars it's the men that go to war and they have this experience but the women don't have the same experience right it's very telling that um, like somewhere in this book I need to look for the, the specific quote but there's a line where it says okay like the woman have to do this next or something like the men had to go through this war and they you know they come home with this ptsd and of course many writers have written about how um like for example there's a book called the body keeps the score which talks about how there's a lot of people who've gone to war or have gone through difficult trauma and things like this and their issues is when they come back they can't connect with anyone that hasn't gone through a similar mm-hmm. experience which is very interesting in the context of dating because i guess you're kind of sussing out why they put that on there that's almost like what you're interested in is like what is it connecting all these men that are also different because in, in this essay there's so many different guys that you go on dates with but the one thing they have in common is they like Kurt Vonnegut but they also don't seem to really care <laughs>
3: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) right. But but I also think, like, I think dating app, right? It's like, you put things you're interested in on there. And one of them is like, oh, what kind of cultural things? do you Like, what kind of music do you like? What kind of books do you like? And, you know, I'm a person that like, really wants to talk about books, which, you know, for is not for everyone. And so, uh, you know, just there's some things are more important than others. You know, for me, talking about books is really exciting. And I just don't know. It's, you know, it's also pretty nerdy. And I don't know that everyone is really, especially, you know, and again, like, first dates are, like, they're awkward, vulnerable situations, and so, you know, that might not be the, you know, the first thing that everyone gravitates toward. You know, it, it, the essay is also partly a critique of just certain gender dynamics that I tend to, or I have tended to experience of, you know, as a, as a woman asking lots of questions, being really interested, and then having, you know, a person I'm on a date with who is a man just you know just really talking endlessly and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again it's like uh, yeah and I know again it's like a really vulnerable awkward situation but it, you know it, again just a uh, more to examine the breakdown of relationality and the breakdown of a, a inability to connect which again I think this this, this kind of app dating also exacerbates because you're you know essentially meeting up with someone who you yeah. you know you don't you've never seen in real life you don't necessarily have things in common with and you know you have no idea whether there's going to be like any kind of chemistry whether you'll get along at all in you know outside of the app and so I think there's also an added pressure and or a person who already is feeling anxious perhaps that kind of striving to I don't know to impress someone to talk a lot about yourself uh, comes comes a bit more to, to the fore than it would otherwise
0: so I'm actually you know I'm not on tinder I think I'm the only person I know that's never had a tinder I've I've avoided it like the plague like I'm just one of those people uh who and you know this, this book talks a lot about fate and choice and things like this, especially in like love and free will. And I guess I wanted to steer the conversation in that direction because you mentioned, you know, you know, why does Calgary Tinder like Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut so much? And you say, well, really, Tinder is a galaxy of infinite choice in the realm where we've been so often sold the idea of destiny and who, when plucked up by its hormonal squalls, doesn't believe that love is somehow ordained. And this feeling isn't it one that makes life for all its terrible weather worth living, And I found that so interesting because for the listeners that haven't read Slaughterhouse-Five, really good book, by the way, um, basically in the book what they mention these these aliens that kind of pick up billy pilgrim the main character they mention that you know earth is the only planet with free will <laughs> and that's why they're so interested and i know you know I'm, I'm a somewhat spiritual person i would say and i know a lot of other people that are spiritual as well and they talk about how you know that's a big thing about our our lives is like this free will thing is almost too much to deal with but i thought i'd I push a little bit further because you mentioned you know with with tinder we have choice and it's not like the old days where you have three people to pick from and you kind of end up with one but i kind of I almost want to push back and ask maybe it's the, the issue that we have a choice but it's not really a choice because you have a choice of everyone on Tinder mm-hmm. but the people that maybe you connect with are not on there and therefore the choice is not actually don't you, it's almost like the illusion of choice maybe mm-hmm. is what bugs people about Tinder mm-hmm. because it's like you have this choice but at the same time because it's so you know, you get these pictures of people, but you might not everyone's on there. Mm. I don't know if this is making sense. Yeah, but <laughs>
3: it totally makes sense. I, I think, okay, so I think for me, also just in my life in general, is also this sense, like, much like Monica, this, this tension I feel in my own life between fate and free will, because I'm also a person that very much, you know, likes to believe that there is some kind of I don't know, some kind of something that's, like, guiding our lives that certainly, you know, I I would certainly identify as a a spiritual person as well. Maybe it is just, like, my own bias where somehow digital technology just seems, like, outside of, which is, of course, ridiculous, (laughs) right? Like, why is it any less fateful if you... I don't know, like, m- meet your partner, like, at, on the train station than on Tinder. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it just, I think maybe it's just because it feels like there's, I don't know, this app that, it, you know, is create
0: like, there's so is many it, other, I don't know. But do you almost feel like it's, to me, I almost feel like it's the commercialization of it. And it's almost like we said that catfishing thing, like, almost in a way, everyone's a bit of a catfish. And so it seems irrational to say that Tinder is outside the realm of fate when almost anything else could be like, you know, having the same yeah. job as someone or something. But at the same time, to me, it almost, reflects this thing where we're being pushed pushed like pushed more and more towards this algorithm that almost caters to us where mm, in some ways mm-hmm. it's nice to meet something that challenges you and you're probably not going to find that if you're picking right. and choosing is that is that yeah. fair to say like it's, it's there's no challenge in it almost Is in that the maybe- same
3: way that i think a lot of things that are marketed to, to us digitally take away that i don't know if it would be serendipity, but that sense of just like exploring, you know, like when you go into a bookstore or record store, and you just like are called to something, it feels like you're like, oh, this is cool, where, you know, if you're on a website, and it's curating what it thinks you will like, those are the things you see, like, I think that there is a bit of something of just that life energy that feels lost. Yeah, because I, yeah. I find
0: all the people like everyone I've ever like really liked has always been this is an accident. But two, there's also this this element of like in a way you choose it, but you're like, OK, this is not what I think that I'd like or that, that kind of thing. Like I tend to even me, I tend to gravitate towards people that you wouldn't expect from me or I think a lot of mm-hmm. people wouldn't expect people that are not like me at all. People that don't even mm-hmm. read sometimes only because you kind of want that challenge or mm-hmm. that balance. And maybe that's mm-hmm. our issues. We're coming a little unbalanced or it's mm-hmm. a little too easy. I don't know.
3: I think you're right to push back at that point, because I don't know that it's any less like, you know, if I want to believe in fate, or, I want you know, or some mixture of fate and free will, I don't know that, you know, m- meeting someone on Tinder is like, is somehow less, I don't know, metaphysically exciting exactly. than it is anywhere else.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I keep myself off it. Because I think, I think, okay, if this is really meant to happen, they'll find a better way. <laughs>
3: Right, right.
0: I don't even give myself that choice right
3: (laughs) yeah and I mean choice like choice choice is hard right I mean it's it's wonderful to have so many choices but I also think I don't know it can it, it can also make it hard to to choose
0: yeah so you have this very interesting essay collection because it begins with a wake and it ends with a marriage and you actually talk about uh, the the final essay is called The Wedding Plot, and it's shorter than some of the others. Um, and you mentioned that you had a creative writing teacher that says, oh, weddings are boring. Don't do weddings. Don't do weddings. And you're pushing back saying, OK, but weddings, weddings have the ability to be just as interesting as anything else. I, I guess I did want to talk about um, you. You mentioned because you, you, you go on kind of this quest to kind of interpret or understand the wedding story a little bit closer and you mentioned that you uh, you you listened to an interview uh, with a writer and the you know the writer mentions that a story should move towards the celestial where it longs to go, which I found so interesting. And you talk about the term anagogical and you say, you know, your dictionary defies anagogy as the interpretation of a word, passage or text that finds beyond the literal, allegorical and moral senses a fourth and ultimate spiritual or mystical sense. Um, so I was curious about this one because a fable, of course, has the literal, the allegorical and the moral. Mm-hmm. So is this, is the reason this collection of essays in this wedding plot is, is the reason it's like a modern fable is because we're adding in that, 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 that fourth ultimate spiritual or mystical sense. Is that kind of what changes things and gives it depth? Is that kind of why you question it? Is it?
3: Uh... Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if, if I think about the way I'm using fable in the essay, modern fables, it certainly relates to. Uh, yeah, like a kind of easy morality, you know, like a a children's story that offers simple anecdotes as truth. Yeah. So, I mean, I I would hope that the collection offers that, you know, that, that fourth level, I think that certainly is what writing that I gravitate towards and admire, you know, has that, that quality that seems to, you know, take it somewhere mystical, somewhere special, somewhere powerful, yeah I mean, but I mean, maybe that just you know maybe that that sense just comes from acknowledging all of the contradictions and the irreconcilable aspects of of being alive
0: and I guess too, like you mentioned in this in this this final essay, the wedding plot, you mentioned almost like uh you're you're out, outside of a wedding with someone else. you mentioned that it's like you're outside with somebody, and I believe it's the person who's getting married looks outside, and she can sense you kind of like a threatened animal, so it's interesting because fables you know you mentioned animals throughout this entire collection. And often animals represent some sort of folly, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's the rabbits that die because they're too trusting, and there's the catfish, and there's the cats, and mm-hmm. and and in this and this one it's almost like you're the animal. So do you think that's what makes it mm. also modern? Is you're actually embracing the the, the amoral or the folly because mm. you're going beyond that and and seeing that that's a part of us, uh, I suppose. Mm. Uh, yeah, like going back to conflict, right? It's like with the tortoise and the hare, there has to be the both of them. So is that is that kind of part of it too? Is maybe like with these modern fables, you kind of start to embrace the uh, <laughs> the, the animals that you're not, or the behaviors you're not supposed to embrace yeah. to a certain a certain extent because you need to know, you need to explore it.
3: Yes. Or... Yeah, I like I really like that. I mean, I think the final yeah the final essay in the collection. I think perhaps there is more of a, I don't know, maybe an ownership of the narrator owning a different path, I suppose. That, yeah, perhaps is less conventional than, you know, some of, you know, than, you know, her, her friend that is, you know, getting married. Of course. I don't know. I'd have to think more about this sense of, like, Wildness, or you know, I I really love writing about animals. I just love animals, so there are yes. a lot of, <laughs> lot of animals in there. I don't know that I've really thought about uh, like the the narrator's relationship to the animals per se, but I like that idea of I don't know, like a, the the animal is a metaphor for breaking free from human centered social constraints or something. Yeah, I like that a lot.
0: But I guess, too, it's interesting in the literary form because in, you know, TVs and movies and in plays, in TVs and movies and plays and things like this, they say don't work with kids or animals because you can't control them. Ah, but which is so interesting because in this one you mentioned, you know, childhood and lying and the animals and lying. So it's mm-hmm. almost like, Maybe there's this fear of, of of the beast element in kids and animals because you can't control them. So that's, I guess that's kind of yeah what that's I picked so up from that. <laughs> I also
3: think, but I also think one of the reasons why they also it seems like for me anyway, relationships with animals are often easier than relationships right. with other humans. Like because and I think it goes back to this idea that there isn't this like veneer. Like if an animal is upset, they're just or, yeah. you know they they will just do what they want. Like you, same with children; They'll, they're yeah. very
0: very honest, Too right? Honest. Yes,
3: right. So I feel like it's like very frustrating <laughs> because you can't necessarily predict or you know control their behavior, but they you know they, they're not like dissembling like for the most part you know they're they're acting the way that they feel
0: I, I guess to like finish off this this um this interview too going back to like the wedding briefly and, and things like this so this you know this collection is so interesting because it talks about choice and free will it talks about weddings and funerals and, and things like this and it talks about fate and astrology and it mentions all sorts of things I didn't get into every essay in this collection although I would have loved to but I just did not have the time so I guess I guess what I kind of wanted to ask you is if, if a lot of this does have to do with the perform performativity of like sounds cheesy but consciousness or being an adult or being a human being because I was thinking about weddings and weddings are such a fascinating thing and marriage particularly because legally a marriage is a performative speech act and it has to have someone there it can't be you and someone else you have to have like a quote-unquote witness or officiant and in the same way with writing it's almost like there's you in the page but there has to be almost like this this reader so my, my question here let me pick up my book here I think I wrote you know are weddings kind of about having a witness or having mm-hmm. someone to just for even a minute to recognize mm-hmm. you. does that does that make sense because like even even writing is very much it's we talk about performative speech and there's not many performative speech acts but something for like you can't say you are dead that will make someone dead but you say you are now married yeah. it is actually a performative speech act and I, I guess my question is like as, as a writer you know is there some element of wanting that that recognition or that kind of Not recognition as in an award or a ceremony, but the recognition of another being, seeing you and recognizing you. And this is, of course, why we write about the wedding plot is because you want, you want, your writing is a performative speech act. Does that that
3: make sense? Uh, Thinking about this idea of acknowledgement or recognition, I do grapple with in one of the essays where I was thinking a lot about ambition and what it means to just want to create something, you know, want it to, you know like the the example i'm using in in that essay is hooked rugs but it Correct. could be anything right or just wanting to you know write uh, keep a journal or you know do watercolor painting at home and the difference between the creative impulse that can feel really freeing and joyous and 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 fun and life affirming and the distinction between that and wanting recognition and acknowledgement and uh, having something that you've created be in the world, seen by others. and
0: I guess it's fascinating to me about the witness element, and I guess it kind of features into, like, the fate and the destiny themes in this, in this collection, as well as kind of, like, even, I think it mentions astrology a couple times and things, because I know in astrology they talk about with people, there's, you know, there's you and the person, but then there's this, it's almost like what's in between you is its own thing, or, like, an animal, or a, do you know what I mean, like, an energy, or, and I guess it's a similar thing with the book, like, you know, there's me and you, and then there's this collection, and, of course, there's going to always be this weird tension there right? The the disconnection. So I, you know, when you write that, you know, the, you're quoting a writer saying that, you know, the short story should veer towards the celestial, I wonder if it's like, it kind of reflects this cosmic thing, this, this attraction where you want to connect, even though there's, there's a separateness there. I I don't know. I don't know if I'm even making sense. Yeah, (laughs) no,
3: I I, I mean, I think, and I also, you know, if I think about, yeah, it's like I'm. I'm just trying to think about your really interesting analogy of like you know the the couple getting married and the officiant or the Correct. the witness that there needs to be yeah there needs to be some kind of I don't know like official I suppose maybe in this case like the the mediation is 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 the book itself but I uh, I don't know I think like I think one of the reasons I love reading so much is and and what I what I how I like to imagine the relationship between writer and reader is like. I think reading requires just as much creativity. You know, you have to bring just as much to it. Um, When you were mentioning, like, digital spaces being a place, I I, I really resonate with that idea. But also, you know, the the imaginative space that, like, literature brings, you know? Like, when you're imagining, like, you know, it's like many, of course, many novels or short stories I read uh, or, you know, nonfiction are set in places I've never been or, you know, there's a house. And the way that we imagine that, it's like we inhabit a space that, we kind of share. Well, thank you so much for coming on air with us and discussing this work. This was such a
0: fun uh, work to read. So I'm really excited. I could kind of uh, probe your mind a little bit about uh, what was going on in there. Um, Was there anything else you wanted to say to listeners or anything you wanted to let any readers know?
3: I don't think so, but I just want to thank you so much, Maddie. This was such a fun conversation, and I really appreciate you having me here and asking such uh, such thoughtful questions. It was really fun to talk about the book.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I hope the listeners will pick up a copy of Modern Fables at a local bookstore near them <laughs> in Calgary, Alberta. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to another episode of Writer's Block on cjsw 90.9 fm writer's block airs on the third wednesday of every month from 8 to eight fifty p.m and if you ever miss our show live you can check us out on CGSW.com. that was my interview with micah jacobson to finish off this episode of writer's block we have a little bonus segment coming up next on literary history stay tuned And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. For tonight's episode on literary history, we are going to do a quick jaunt into the world of genre. That is, fantasy and horror. In the horror spirit, let's play a little game. Tonight we are actually celebrating two separate literary birthdays. Both of these writers are best-selling authors in the fantasy and horror genres respectively, and both were born in the 1940s. One is known as the American Tolkien, while the other, is known as the king of horror. We're going to play a quick segment of them speaking here. Can you guess who it is?
2: Yes, there is something I want to ask you. All right. How the f- do you write so many books so fast? <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, uh, I've had a really good six months. I've written three chapters and you've you yeah, finished but... three books in that time. You don't ever have a day where you sit down there and it's like constipation and you write a sentence and you hate the sentence and you wonder if you had any talent after <laughs> all and maybe you should have been a plumber.
0: <laughs> For those who couldn't recognize the voices, that was George R. R. Martin and Stephen King. Martin is known worldwide for his Song of Ice and Fire series, whereas King is known for his horror hits such as It and The Shining. Martin was born on September 20th, while King was born on September 21st. You might be thinking that's an unlikely coincidence, but additionally, The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien was also published on September 21st meaning that the 21st of September has symbolic meaning for anyone in love with genre fiction. That was our short segment on literary history for this month. Tune in next month to play again!